when you've been when you've been doing this for 50 years, you've seen a lot. You've seen our people suffer. That you were a part of trying to steer some of that stuff. You were part of trying to save some lives. You were not a spectator in what was going on. And I think right now, some of us are spectators. I'm just going to bring it to you straight, y'all, because y'all didn't ask me to come all this way to bullshit. So why can't we figure this stuff out, y'all? It's because we don't take this stuff seriously. These folks got a plan, and they've been working their plan for a very long time, and I can say that because when I say 50 years, on the same damn thing. So they're moving ahead with a plan, y'all, but we seem to be in some kind of virtual loop here. And we got to get ourselves out of it. And we got to get out out quick. Because ultimately, our people's future resides on what we do outside of the White House. When we come to it, we must confess that we are the possible. We are the miraculous, the true wonder of this world. That is when, and only when, we come to it. America's chickens! Home. Our common ground with Janice Graham, transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. You're gonna sing, swim, you're gonna learn the truth. No matter what you do, you're gonna learn the truth. Alternative activist empowerment on radio, speaking truth to power and ourselves. is a three-strike law and then wants us to sing God bless America? No, no, no. Not God bless America. God... Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. Our Common Ground, speaking truth to power and ourselves. Our Common Ground, a higher ground for discourse, discussion, solutions, and ideas. I'm Janice Graham, and I'll be listening for you. Talk, talk, that matters. And good evening to everyone out there. Thank you for joining us here at Our Common Ground. I'm Janice Graham. And I simply moderate truth and knowledge here in this black sanctuary. Thank you for being with us and for our brothers and sisters who are joining us tonight and who uh, enjoy the spiritual journey of the month of Ramadan. We wish you Ramadan Kaim. And for those of you um, who, like the rest of us, are somehow trying to make this journey in a very hard and painful and confusing time during this pandemic, we wish you so much to know that you are not alone. And if you have lost friends and family in this pandemic, we send out our prayers and our wish for great comfort to you and your families, and your community, and your neighbors. 
Um, I usually open this show by going through some of the news, but some of the news is just so chaotic and not well constructed as it's being reported. We do know, however, that the narcissistic sociopath uh, in the White House continues to gaslight America. And because of that, we all need some clarity. We need some healing and we need some soothing. And our guest tonight is just the right person. Um, I am so glad to be able to join and take you on a thinking journey sitting on the front porch of Dr. Ruby Nell Sale. She is a civil rights legend, a pioneering and worn civil rights movement activist, and a contemporary philosophy on racial and human justice. And we welcome her back. We're so proud of her. She is a 2014 Our Common Ground witness from the bridge. And a very we recognize her as a very deeply committed social activist, scholar, administrator, a manager, a public theologian, an educator. And if you have not, you should follow her, um, subscribe to her Facebook to be able to touch our lives, our collective lives from her front porch. It is a dynamic web commentary on Facebook every day, and I have been reading it for over a year. Uh, tonight we're going to be talking with her about one nation no longer under God but under mob madness. Ruby Sales is the founder and director of the Spirit House Project, and we're going to be talking with her more about her work in in that regard, and she's a highly trained, experienced, and deeply committed social activist, a scholar. And she is an educator in the areas of civil, gender, and other kinds of human rights. In 2000, Dan Rather spotlighted our dear sister Ruby on his American Dream segment, in 1999, Selma, Alabama, gave uh, Ruby Sales the key to the city to honor her contributions there. And in 2007, um, Ruby moved to Columbus, Georgia, where she organized a Southern Summit on Racism, a national write-in campaign to save Albany State from being merged into the white college. Those are efforts that have outcomes in our future that honor our culture and our history. In 2009, she was named a history maker by the history makers for her contributions to civic affairs. Um, and uh, she serves, as I said, 
as the director of the Spirit House Project, and I, I've got to catch up with her. Ruby and I uh, have uh, I've been moving to Florida, and she's been moving to somewhere else, and she's no longer in her native Georgia, and I'm back in my native Florida. <laughs> so it's my pleasure to be able to sit on the front porch tonight with my dear sister warrior, Ruby Sales. Ruby now, how are you? How are you? Oh my goodness, it's so wonderful to hear your voice. And well, welcome I, to my front porch and I'm so happy to be sitting on your coming ground. Well, you know, uh, I could smell the lavender, even though I know where you are up north, but <laughs> I still smell mama's lavender back down south as we sit here on on your front porch. Ruby, I can't tell you how valuable your writing has been over the last year and a half you've been doing it. You know, at first you were just writing and and you were and you were calling at your front porch and then I could see you were coming to understand how dynamic, uh how powerful at that daily journey, that daily diary of where we were and and the kind of thinking that we need to be engaged in. And 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 I want to tell my audience that one of the things about your writing is that it has fire. But but even in that fire you can smell the embers of the work and the experience that you have had as an activist. I smell it every day. But but let's let's talk about uh a little bit. I, I do want people and many people will be very interested in in to know what's going on with the Spirit House project and how you have restructured it in your new setting before we get into talking about your calling uh, for uh, charges of genocide against this evil person that we have, illegitimate president that we have in the White House. So what's going on with with Spirit House? Well, right now, Spirit House is involved. Thank you for asking. Right now, we're involved in developing and creating racial justice cafes in North and South Carolina. And basically, racial justice cafes are common spaces where people come together to build racial justice sites by, by with a series of activities of such as spirituality, research, action. Really, we give people the language and knowledge whereby they can begin to speak to themselves and organize for racial justice. And right now, it started out being a physical space, of course, but given the pandemic, we are online. The Racial Justice Cafes will make our debut uh, sometimes next week. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Online, well, I'm, I'm, our I'm, online I'm, debut. So I'm we glad deal that with a broad is. range of issues. Right now, we really ask people to really not talk about that we're in a pandemic war, That we that that's really a very dangerous way to look at it because in a war you have enemies. In a war you have collateral damage. 
In a war, you tend to devalue human life. In a war, it's an over-and-against structure. We're not in a war. We're in a humanitarian crisis. And the difference is that in a, in a humanitarian crisis, you save human life. You recognize the value of all life. And it's not, and you don't create enemies, you create neighbors. And as long as President Trump and the Republicans tell us that we're at war, it, it further divides the nation and it makes us be, uh, become adversaries rather than helpful with each other in a humanitarian crisis. So right now what we've been trying to do is to really point out some very significant issues in terms of racial justice and really encouraging people to look beneath the surface of what the news media and, 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 and politicians are telling us about where we are today and really began to look at and read the signs for ourselves. Mm-hmm. I am always so amazed at the insight uh, that you have on 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 it, it's it's you're you're you pay attention to the detail and what you just said is such an important point. It's really that we should important not to understand. Yeah, absolutely. We should because not allow him to stand on a national platform and declare war on what he calls the invisible enemy or whatever he's talking about. Well, it, it moves from being an invisible enemy to, first of all, it was the Chinese as, as enemy. And we must realize that that notion of the Chinese being diseased and being enemies, that's not a new notion. That goes all the way back to the 19th century when Chinese were seen as the yellow peril. And so that and being contaminated and diseased and contamin, um, contaminating American society. Also, the other enemy that emerges from this are African Americans who are seen, whose bodies are seen as impure because we have comorbidities. It's very dangerous language to talk about a war because you must have enemies. Mm-hmm. And there's another aspect to it, and I don't want to minimize. I want to continue to talk about why this war metaphor. Uh, came up for him, part of it is his sociopathic uh, tendency because he attended military school but never did anything militarily. Uh, The other is that um, he believes that that is the kind of thing that endears him to white nationalists in this country. But there's another aspect to it, Ruby, uh, that I've been thinking about, and that is that war, the, the purpose of war, is about the economy. It is not about saving any nation, saving any people. If people get killed in a war, it's okay because it's about profit. Every war, I did my, I did my, my master's dissertation on the purpose of war is an is 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 the economy. Uh, so it's really interesting that he brings this on, and I think some of this, and I, you know, I I, I kind of get confused. One day I think one way, and the other day I think the other way. I think that. He is either totally insane on some days, and the other days I think he's crazy as a fox. 
Well, this is what I think. I think we need to step back a moment and understand that this thing is larger than Donald Trump. That is a coalition of white men who founded the American Legislative Exchange Council. It goes all the way back to Richard Nixon and the rise of of the, of the Southern strategy. It is deeper than one man, and it and it predicates itself. Uh, it gave birth to the war of drug, war on drugs under Nixon and 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 Ronald Reagan. And white supremacy is predicated on other and that the fact that black and brown people are enemy combatants who must be contained, segregated in small spaces because we pose a clear and present danger to the stability and the survival of white people. So that this country has all, even the slave patrols that existed during enslavement came out of a war mentality of containment and surveillance. There's never been a time in this country where white people have not been at war with African Americans because they see this as their country and they and they saw us as their property and and and, and, and embedded in white supremacy is always the angst and the fear that black and brown people want what white people have. And that in order and that black rights threaten white rights. So to have for black people to have white rights to have rights it means that white people believe that they have less rights. So if you look at the massacres that happened in New Orleans, Memphis, uh, Colfax, Louisiana, um, Elaine, Arkansas, in the 1870s all the way up to the 1900s, this country has always been at war with African Americans and indigenous Native Americans. Well, let's... Let's draw back on um, this whole idea of the emergence of the hearts of white men and 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 whiteness in what we are experiencing today. Let's 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 kind of drill down on that. I think that there are very many people, you know, nice people, really nice people who think, you know, we can all get to get, can we all get together? Can we all get along? Um, they have a hard time seeing outside of a conspiracy lens the notion of how whiteness is at the core of not only the 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 um destruction of our government but we're talking about the destruction of black people to the extent that they can become simply invisible and disposable. Well, I think that the thing about the cultural whiteness and whiteness is that it not only destroys, it not only attempts to destroy black folk, but it also destroys white folk because it reduces white people's identity to one thing, which is skin color. And there is no history, mm-hmm. there's no culture, there's nothing in skin color. And so, in order to, and so the white identity requires white people to, to, to uh, cannibalize their class, mm-hmm. their sexuality, their gender, all of their identities, and to be dehumanized and reduced to something called skin. And, all, and their yeah. ethnicities, that means that they're separated from their ethnic history, 
which means that they are committing existential and historical suicide and cultural suicide that separates them from their great-grandparents, that separates them from their folk history, that separates them from their folk culture, that separates them from their folk tongue. And contrary to what the guardians of whiteness tell them, it is not a privilege to be, whiteness is not a privilege, it's a soul death. Uh, it, can 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 this epidemic of uh, uh, of white people and drugs and um, the resurgence of white nationalist organizations yes. and white supremacy organizations can be explained in that context? Yes, because the because the current to be white is and who benefits from whiteness has narrowed and it's only one percent of white folk who, who white men basically who benefit from whiteness. And the value of the ticket to ride on the train of whiteness is not the same it doesn't carry the same value. And and because okay. white skin and the benefits of white skinness is the sole identity of white folk, they are in a state of feeling that they're being murdered. They're angry because they feel as if their whole souls have been their whole essence, their whole identity. If if they if if to be white does not give them the same benefits that they had once before, then what are they? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so you now, see people. There would be an argument from some, uh, Dr. Sales. There would be an argument from some that says, "Well, wait a minute. There are white people." who are holding on to their notions of white supremacy as a a point of resistance in their lives. That's not what they're holding on to is the sense of their identity. White supremacy cannot be extrapolated from their sense of who they are because white supremacy is predicated on all of the attributes of whiteness, superiority, um, over and against structure, uh, you are by nature uh, the legitimate heirs of the society and that you should have a better life than everyone else. And so when these things no longer exist and you find yourself living from paycheck to paycheck and struggling to survive and, and that all and you no longer have the accoutrements of your identity, then, then of course what you see are, death, are people in, 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 the, in the state of dying. Mm-hmm. And because we believe this whole notion of white, that white people are superior, and because we are stone materialists who believe that the that the documentation of a good life is what we have and what we possess, we then have been told that white people live the good life. We never deal with the spirit, what it means to be a people who have committed genocide. What does it mean to be a people who lynched black men and black women and fought for for black men's genitals? What does it mean to be a people who would lynch pregnant black women and bash their fetuses' heads on the ground? What does it mean to be a people who who have committed, who napalmed the village in, in, in Vietnam? What does it mean to be a people who are so spiritually malformed and socially perverse that everything they touch they kill, including the earth, including the environment. 
we don't look at those things because they've convinced us that the that the manifestation of good life is a car is are the material things that we possess and not our inner lives and our inner consciousness and who we are as a as a person as a people as if we can separate who we are on the inside from what we create on the outside and so black people have really been duped into believing and seeing the world through white eyes and so despite all of the spiritual malformation and the social perversities that have existed in the culture of whiteness, we somehow believe that it is a privilege to be white because white people might have more material things than we do. Then, then how, how in, in, in terms of being able to recalibrate, and I, I talked about this last week on this program a lot, how we begin to rebuild restructure, rehab our political and cultural infrastructure. How do we begin to do that? First of all, we must root out the whiteness that we've internalized. And we must begin Whoa, to ask. Oh, Ruben, now you just, <laughs> I just almost came back in my rocking chair when you Whoa, okay, so we, because, we have Because, you know, to... the whiteness is a virus that infects all of our lives. And so while black people are not the systemic perpetrators of whiteness, we certainly have internalized whiteness. And so, the, and, and so by internalized whiteness, we, too, commit existential suicide on our ethnicities, on, our, on all of our identities, and, and, and we begin to identify with, with, with being white. And that has been a critical problem that black people have have really suffered from since the Southern Freedom Movement and the popular movements of the 60s and 70s that got translated mm-hmm. into movements for integration and got translated into civil rights movements rather than the full meaning of the movements, which were really freedom movements, because the movement, we were not just... Um, wanting to know, we were not just wanting to vote. We were not just wanting to ride on the bus. We were asserting our human rights, our rights to be full human beings, our right to live a life of dignity, our our right to be free to move in society without fearing for our lives. And so that the problem with revising and diminishing that movement to a civil rights movement is that it took the power in a freedom movement the power is in the hands of the people. In a civil rights movement, the benefactors become the state and the government. And so it shifted the power out of the hands of black people and put the power in the hands of the state as if they were the ones who gave us the civil, the, our rights. They are the ones who have the power. Whereas in a freedom movement, the people who have the power are to get to be free are the people themselves. Mm-hmm. So the word you know, really uh, I need to, to say that we're having a tornado warning. So if if, okay. if the phone okay. dies, if you have to leave, we're we're having a storm. Uh, I'm getting used to rainstorms that I think it's a hurricane, and I call my neighbor and say, "Is this a hurricane?" They say, "No, it's not a hurricane." <laughs> okay. <laughs> I mean, uh, but you know, I, I do want to tell you, Ruby, when we when we lost touch, when you made your move, 
and I was getting, I was doing battle with uh, Ben Carson and his minions, and decided. I really said, Ruby, I got to get the hell out of here before I either they they wrap me in prison and take away my retirement. So so I retired really with without a plan. Uh, <laughs> and so what happened? It was the first time. It was the first time in my life that I decided that the losses were going to be greater than the gains if I continued the fight. Yes. Yes. So um, I, you know, but 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 here's what I'm thinking. So anyway, when we got lost, it was at the time that you wrote this piece called "Where Does It Hurt." Uh, yes, uh, he did an interview called OD Where Does It Hurt? And, and I didn't have your number because in the midnight hours, I was going to call you because I was going to tell you where it hurts and <laughs> what were we going to do about it. And one of the things that I wanted to talk to you about, and we're going to talk to in the in the, in the next segment, I'm going to take a break and let you take a break, uh, is how do we begin as black people? And you and I have had this conversation in 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 in, in the past. But how do we begin as black people to redefine the foundation of our freedom? Because you just said it. You know, we do a lot of talking about oh, black self-hate and blah, 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 but we are not looking at the ways in which we define freedom. I'm going to put a pin on that. Uh, Dr. Ruby Sales is our guest tonight, and we are so glad to hear her voice, to hear her wisdom, to hear real experience and deep down thought about the love of our people because that's where it's coming from. Our number is 347-838-9852. If you want to join all the folks in the chat room, you can come to blogtalkradio.com, OCG, and sign right in. I'm Janice Graham, and we'll be right back. The odds of this daughter of a clergyman spending 11 weeks at number one on the U.S. singles charts? What does it say? One. And 19 million. The odds of going on to win six Grammy Awards? One and 1.4 million. The odds of having a child diagnosed with autism? One in 150. I'm Tony Braxton, and I encourage you to learn the signs of autism at AutismSpeaks.org. Thank you for joining us at Our Common Ground with Janice Graham, transforming truth to power. One broadcast at a time. Shout out to the hip hop public health. All the healthcare workers on the front line. Together, we can make a difference. What's good, y'all? This is LT Fresh coming at you live and direct. All of y'all out there, got a couple of things I want to talk to y'all about. Wash your hands, everybody. And everybody, wash your hands. Come on, wash your hands, everybody. And everybody, wash your hands. My people up and down. Wash your hands, my people downtown, wash your hands. People from the East Coast, wash 
Transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. And now, back to Janice. And thank you again for being with us. Don't forget, you should follow our guest, Dr. Reverend Ruby in Sales, on Facebook for her From My Front Porch web commentary that is so dynamic every day every day and don't forget to uh kind of subscribe to us our common ground talk radio on facebook uh follow us on twitter janice ocg and subscribe to our website where we can pick up your information so we can send you information and you will always be in the loop. Dr. Sales, thank you again. Our 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 common ground witness from the bridge. We we are so honored to have you once again here with us. Now, in 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 we were talking about this whole notion of how we came through movements and there was a a shift in how we began to understand our purpose, the, the the journey, the direction, and the path. And I'm calling that how we define freedom. And if we have somehow, not somehow, um, been through a process that uh, that caused us to be able to claim um, uh, a, a Factors claim things in our lives that we measured our lives through the lens or through the experience, through the existence, the reality of whiteness. How then do we begin to reformulate our understanding of our freedom? I think to move from dismemory to memory to move from fragmentation back into community. 
I believe that it's really important when you talk about a, a struggle, it's really important not only to understand the nature of the struggle, but also who tells the story. And we've allowed our stories of struggle to be told by people who revise the meaning of the story. And as I said, it, it, it is no, it's really important to understand what it meant for, the, for this movement, this freedom movement to be reduced to civil rights, because that, that was problematic. It hit all the violence. It hit everything except to say that we were in this struggle for civil rights. It hit the lynchings, it hit the night riders, it hit the whole story of what we that we were in a war. That the South declared war on freedom fighters. We were fighting for freedom. We were not simply fighting for civil rights. We were fighting for the right to live in this country with dignity and as men and women. And the other thing that we have really allowed to happen that's really has been very, very, very how do I want to say this? Because I don't want to offend us. But why is it that the people who threw rocks at our children on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Saturday, that we turned around and sent them back into the classroom for those people to teach them on Monday? What hey made now. us think that the people who tried to kill our children or who tried to kill us could teach our children? What made us think so little of our children that we would turn our children over to people who didn't love them? What made us think that an education was a good education that did not have us as part of any narratives, that totally erased who we were? We were not white, so what might have been a good education for a white child was not a good education for our children. But yet, and we still cannot admit and ask the question, what was wrong with that decision. It doesn't mean that we have to beat up on ourselves, but it does mean that we have to critically ask what was the internalized whiteness that made us abandon our children and send them into sites where they were six and seven years old and had to stand up against white adults who did not value them and who did not believe that they were capable of, of mattering. And so that that's called abandonment. And when a group of people feel like you've abandoned your children and you don't love your children, they don't respect you. Yes. They didn't turn yes. their children over to us to teach. They didn't turn their children <laughs> over for us to interpret the meaning of life. So that intergenerational disruption where we allowed white people to be the culture carriers and the interpreters of the meaning of our lives and our struggles we create a disconnect, a lack of intimacy, where we don't know young folk and they don't know us, and they are more familiar with white people than they are with us. That was That's very dangerous. That's called cultural suicide and genocide. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, um, Ruby, you know that uh, I was one of those victims. I attended high school for three years, and I was the only um, student, and 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 I, uh, I was not prepared uh, to go from 
leadership at my school and being proud of my school to going to I just go to school. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, and I was also a monitor on the buses of taking black children into South Boston where rocks and bottles and little children were, the buses were were attacked. Um, so we we have seen all of this, and, and I do sometimes wonder. Um, I, I give you a good example. Um, my my first year at Palm Beach High School, uh, I was in French a French class, and this woman who had a French accent, I, I'm not sure if she was French or not, was a teacher. And on the first day, she said to me, why are you here? As though, you know, did I have to have a special ticket or something to be in this class? And... And uh, she says, do you speak French? And I said, no. She says, then why are you here? And she didn't ask anybody else's question. She was just asking me as though, why is your black face in here trying to learn French? And because I was such a perspicacious kind of personality, I said to her, because I already finished four years of Spanish. And... From that time on, I didn't do well in that class. <laughs> you can imagine. But you and know, those are the kind. Those are the kind of experiences. I think who had that experience knew what that was about. But yet, yes. I guess I'm trying to put your question very hard to the audience. I'm trying to say, if we were having trouble as grown folk dealing with white folk, why would we send our vulnerable children? Exactly. Into sites exactly. where they couldn't defend themselves. Yeah, yeah. And why and did then we, we think want that that was good for them? Uh, then we want to make the argument uh, that falls falls flat that somehow that did something for us. And and my argument is. What it did was it destroyed our communities. It, what it did was it destroyed our self-determination and the best of what we had. Um, well, I'm not. You see, the issue should not have been integration. It should have been democratization. We should have democratized public schooling so that the mm-hmm. curriculum, so that if black and white children were going to learn together, it meant, in fact, that there had to be as many black teachers as white teachers. You could not have the school system being 98% white teachers because that yes. then created cultural genocide. Yeah. Because when there's no culture cont- continuity, then that's called genocide. And so the question is, why is it? See, we've got to really, you asked me, how is it that we move forward? The first thing that we have to do is to tell the truth about our mistakes. And the second thing that we've got to do is to reclaim our children, that we cannot let our own illusions and delusions continue to allow us to abandon our children. For example, how many black children have been harassed and killed by the police? Have we protected our children? Have we we been outraged? Have we taken to the streets? Have we said not our children? Mm-hmm. People know that that we don't love our children, and they've understood that, and so therefore they know that they can shoot a black kid in the back 
and we won't do mm-hmm. a thing about it. And back to your point, our children know we have not loved them well. We have not loved them well, and so that we, it doesn't mean that we are bad to the core. It means that we're human and we made some bad mistakes, and that we've got to go back and, and rethink and to understand that some of the anger that we feel from young people is coming from the fact that they feel abandoned, that they don't feel claimed. And the other thing that I don't want to hear another black person say is that these young children, they are this and they are that. If they are this or that, it's because we made them that way, because we didn't, we didn't teach them. We, we abandoned them to people, to babysit and to keep them who, who would not teach them good things about themselves. As a matter of fact, in their history class, it taught them bad things about black adults. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, we've, we've done this battle on this pro, on that that battle on this program many, many times. I have cautioned people over and over by citing statistics on what black people do, what crimes they commit, what ways in which they abandon their children, and and, and, and that is not included in, that, in, in the list of abandonment uh, that people cite. Uh, I I think it's a, a a a conversation that we need to have, and we need to have it through the lens of how do we change it? How do we begin to get you know a, a, a good example? All these black people running around talking about they support um um uh, what's his name a uh, Donald Donald Trump? How is that? or not understanding how the government has diminished who we are. And also, I must say, one of of my pet peeves, I have to tell you, is a fundamental question. How do we measure who we are as, as, as a person, who we are as a people? Do we rely on empire credentials, college education, titles, to de, to uh to define us how do how do we determine how is it that we determine our value as as a person and see I think far too many black people strut in their academic gowns and they want the best seat at the at the table and they use their titles to make black people who don't have titles feel less because they can flaunt their power over those black people when they can't do it with, with their white peers. And so I believe that we've got to stop pulling power plays. We've got to stop. We have to say, look, every person matters. Every person is significant in God's creation. Every person has value. And because I have a Ph.D. or because I have a master's degree or because I, it doesn't mean that that is who I am. Because if if you believe that's who you are, then that means that you're validating the empire. That means that you think Mm -hmm. that they can define who you are. And that means that without their credentials, you don't feel that you're anybody. And if you feel that credentials make you who you are, what do you do with your grandmama and your cousins who don't have credentials? How do you view them? So these are the things that we must begin to look at if we're going to begin, if we're going to 
rid ourselves of the internalization of whiteness. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and, I mean, and, and we, let's, we really let's do talk have about work to do. Yeah, let's talk about where we begin that, uh, Dr. Yeah. Sales. Um, uh, let's talk about where do we begin that in our in in our institutions, the institutions that we think we control but we don't really control. Let's start with the Black Church. But wait, I, 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 Jen. So, so you and I yeah. have known each other for years, right? We, we really value yeah. each other's work. I'm a sister. We've done events together. I am not Doctor Sales to you. I'm either Mama <laughs> Ruby or Ruby. You're Ruby and now. I need to understand that, Jan, that Janet BJ is my friend of many years, and and so that I, 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 so. I, how I see myself is not in terms of my credentials. It's in terms of the work that we've done. And, and, and I see myself as an extension of my parents who didn't have PhDs, but who had a love and who invested in my in my development. And I see myself as being part of the counterculture, a southern black counterculture that was a long train running towards excellence where the community got together and pooled their resources and created outstanding students, outstanding artists, and who refused to believe that their children should be abandoned. Who, who, You know, I think about growing up in the South, in the segregated South, where our parents drew a line in the sand, and I never saw police on our playground. No police ever came into our classrooms because our parents made it very clear, look, we'll go along with segregation, but you are not going to terrorize our children. Our children are off limits. Now, that's what our parents did when they were under the yoke of segregation, but we allow our children to attend militarized schools where policemen patrol the hallways with AK-47s and all kinds of massive weapons of destruction. Do you get my point? What I get your point. I do. the world and lose yep, our I, collective I, I, souls? I absolutely do get your point. And I have been trying to construct the ideas and the notions of how we get back there. Because, you know, I'm a child of the Jim Crow South. South. And I grew up in a black community that clustered and protected me. And with outstanding um, parents, let's be very clear. Don't hide the fact that your parents were outstanding. Don't hide the fact that They were absolutely, absolutely outstanding. You know, I was, uh, Ruby, uh, just a, a side, I was thinking about my mother uh, today um, during the hurricane storm of 1929 when hundreds of black bodies were collected along the roads of Palm Beach County, and those bodies were placed in a truck and brought into West Palm Beach where the city, the, the state government uh, opened up a huge hole and put all of those bodies in one hole inside the black community and buried them. And, and my we mother see used that to tell me the story. During the pandemic. 
exactly. My mother used to tell me that story, and she told me that her father, who was a wealthy in the context of those times, um, called the mayor and said, you will not do this, not this way. And he purchased lime and took my mother, who was very young at the at that age, and she used to tell me the story, and it didn't it didn't really click uh, about how this was done and how he took her to this place where they were burying all these bodies were in this hole, all black bodies in this hole, and she could never forget that her father said, standing at this area where they were burying all these black bodies, they will never honor our humanity. But we will do something. We will not stand by. We will do something. And the only something that he could do, and this was a man who had... had um, had lent money to the city so that they could meet payroll, and there were no black people who are even um, employed by the city. And he was helpless. And she said on that day she decided that black humanity was always going to be, and that's why she was a teacher rather than anything else. And she would say that her job was to help black children discover their dignity and pride. And I was thinking about that today because, you know, I was coming to talk to you because we always uh, tell these stories about how you begin to believe in and understand your freedom. Yes. I think that what we have misunderstood, for example, it's really, I have to go back to what I said. We allow other people to tell our stories and to define who we are, and then we turn around and believe them. For example, yes, there are poor black people, but the other part of the story that never gets told is that beginning in the 1870s, black people harvested out of the arid soil of segregation 111 historically black colleges that create a fluid and dynamic middle class. And so that, but yet we tend to look at black people always as if we are people who never, who, who lack this and lack that, never really asking how did a people who were under such constraints, how is it that a people who had to deal with such racist violence, how is it, that are people who had to scrape the bottom to find money. How is it that these people were able to rise up and create such outstanding men and women and such incredible institutions? That's, and so we don't know that story. So we see mm-hmm. ourselves through the eyes of white folk. And so we feel like we've got to constantly prove ourselves, prove our humanity, when in fact, our, we have all our, our ancestors did that when when mm-hmm. immigrants were running around in Europe barefooted, poor, impoverished. 
Our people are building a nation. Our people are building a community in this country. We don't have to go back to Africa to find, find that. We can find it right in the South where black people build a counterculture that was replete with modalities that, that created a people who were able to fly in a society that said that they couldn't even walk. Mm-hmm. And that's an that's important big. story to tell. But yet we always talk, we allow white folks to talk about black poverty. Yes, we have black poverty, but why won't they also talk about the fact that we were able to hew out of economic dispossession, powerful institutions and powerful people who were also Mm -hmm. great humanitarians who did not feel that they had to, to, to hate or to violate another human being in order to be free. Those were spiritual and and social spiritual geniuses. Why don't we hear those mm-hmm. stories of your mother, your father, my mother, my father, my grandmother? It's because, so because we, we don't know those stories. We we walk around feeling that we are people who are deprived. And beggars. And beggars, when in fact we are, as Sterling Brown says, a strong people keep a coming. Yes, and, they do. And that's do. the only reason why we need to know about the historical black colleges, not because mm-hmm. I'm trying to promote classism, but I'm really trying to bring some balance to who, how do we see ourselves as a people. Yeah. yeah. But but I, I do think that in redefining our freedom, our, 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 our goal of freedom, in, in doing that, uh, restructuring in our thinking that one of the things that we do have to begin to understand that. And I asked this question last week, and nobody called to give me a response, was who are we as a black people in this country today? When you say the black people, do you really know who you're talking about? Well, first of all, I don't like black people because we might share a common diasporic origin, but we also have particular ethnicities. And it's really important to understand that a southern black person and a Ghanaian, while we might have a universal Africanness, we're, we, we, when we make, demand that a Ghanaian see themselves as, as, as cut themselves off from their Ghanaian roots and become a black American, then we're we're doing to them what white folks have done to all of us. And so that Southern black folk, it's really important that we understand the uniqueness of Southern black history. And it's not yes. that I'm trying to say that black people, black people, it, it, black people have many different ethnicities. Yes. And yes. therefore we and have a, a universal, but we also have a particular history. Yeah. And, 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 the, and and our regionalism, our migratory uh, paths and and passages have created uh, some differences that we have to acknowledge. We have um, to, and also we have to. Why is it people have to be able to exist in the context of their lives? And when we allow white people to reduce us to the color of our skin without giving credence to our, our ethnicities, why is it that a Jamaican has to pretend that they are 
that they have southern roots when they don't? Why do they have to pretend that they're African Americans rather than African American Jamaicans? Or why is it that they have to give up their ethnicities? Why do southern blacks have to? Why is it that black people just put in one pot and and we're reduced to the color of our skin? Mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. I want to be able to celebrate my southern history. As a mm-hmm, black person, mm-hmm. it is very important for me to talk about the uniqueness of my history coming from a community of enslaved people who created the first freedom struggle in this country with the runaway enslaved movement. I mm-hmm. want to talk about that. I want to make mm-hmm. sure that people understand that Stacey Abrams does not emerge out of northern liberalism. She's not a progressive. She is, in fact, a descendant of the first enslaved runaway movement the Southern Freedom Movement, her her roots is not white, are not white. Her roots are black, and they're Southern. Mm-hmm. And she stands in the tradition of Fannie Lou Hamer. She mm-hmm. stands in the tradition of Mary McLeod Bethune. She stands in the tradition of Bernice Johnson Regan. She stands in the tradition of George Ladner. I think that that is so important, which is why I am constantly battling with people, and when I quote them and they use a small b for black, I correct it and say black is a proper noun. It is about a people, a specific people who descended from the American slave trade. And because of their migratory patterns, there are differences, but that is the root. And it makes a difference. I mean, I even see the differences, uh, and and I do want to talk about this, and we're going to take another break to give you a break, Ruby, because I really appreciate you spending the full program with us tonight because I think this is a very important conversation to have and I hope that people who are listening will go back and start having this conversation with your family and your friends and begin to tell the stories um, of what your what your journey and your family's journey so that our children know our story so that they begin to define themselves and understand freedom and liberation in the context of their lives as Ruby Sales has so eloquently and in in such a, a genius context provided us uh, in this conversation. Ruby, I'm going to let you take a break. For those of you who are listening, our number is 347-838-9852. We're going to be talking about the intergenerational uh, gap that we have in our community and how all of this plays into that. And we're also going to be talking about how what Ruby has had to offer us tonight has played into the idea of how we end up not ever having really addressed, as we talked with uh, Dr. Kamara Jones last week, uh, health uh, 
black health disparities in this country, how we've allowed a medical um, medical institution um, to play us around these health disparities, and also how it is playing out. And what we have accepted is a response to us and our communities during this pandemic. You're listening to Our Common Ground. I'm Janice Graham, and we're going to take a break. And when we come back uh, at some point in this conversation, we really are going to to take your calls. A layer of the mask off that we seem to wear every single day and to start to speak about our issues, those childhood wounds and scars and secrets and, and lies that sometimes fester inside of us because we are afraid to speak disappointments and, and fears and that someone has hurt our feelings. So we're excited about it. We're asking one million people. how people can come together by spending time apart. Quest Diagnostics thanks you for doing your part to stop the spread of the coronavirus through social distancing and proper hygiene. At Quest, we're doing our part by establishing COVID-19 lab testing capabilities across the country to better serve our communities and healthcare providers. If you suspect you have COVID-19, talk to a healthcare provider and let's keep doing our part so we can all come back together stronger than ever. Our Common Ground, speaking truth to power and ourselves. I'm Janice Graham, and I'll be listening for you. This is a slice of life. It may be my life today and your life tomorrow. Your life today or the life of someone else you know. But here's the question. Just who are you? Who are you when you're not being identified by your name, your clothes, your job, or your job title? Who are you when you are not being defined by your roles, your status? your bank account, or your relationships. Just who are you when you take that first look in the mirror in the morning? Or do you not bother to look at all? Who are you 
When the television is silent, the room is dark, and you are laying alone on your side, flat on your back, or on your belly. Who are you? When you don't know, when you should have done, but you didn't, when you should have, but you don't, when you can't find, won't ask, can't say what you want. Who are you? When you recognize that you have accepted, tolerated, and accommodated stuff from them or him or her that has diminished yourself. Just who are you? No matter what you have or have not done, what you know or don't know, where you've been or haven't been, what you fail to do, you must know who you are the first thing in the morning and all the day long. Not because they told you, but because you know it, you feel it, you believe it, and you live it. Just who are you? You're listening to... This is Our Common Ground with Janice Graham, transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time.
I wasn't having it all because I got three grandchildren, wonderful grandchildren. And next week I'm going to spend some time bringing you up to speed. Um, my wonderful grand princess is now the training manager for the office, the, uh, the Commonwealth of Massachusetts Office of Medical Examin- Examiners. She is an assistant medical examiner. And guess what? Remember, y- you were with me when Miles was born. Miles is now 18, and oh he is goodness. graduating. <laughs> Miles is 18. He's graduating from from high school this year. He is has deferred his entrance into Stanford University engineering program, computer engineering program. He always corrects me. Um until January because his mother feels it's too much confusion going on around the pandemic and she doesn't want him to be all the way out there if this thing is not straightened out. And Mason is now eight and he wants to he wants to, to help me. He says he can help me do my radio program. So that's a little bit of catching up. Tonight our guest is my good sister warrior, Ruby Sales. And Ruby, I am so glad to be talking to you. I have needed you. Where you been? Uh, Girl, where have you been? I've been looking for you. And you were so busy. Kids, oh, my goodness. 18 yeah. going to Stanford. Oh, my God. He's a grown person. Well, I just I let me do a little grand brag here. He was he was accepted at MIT, Georgia Tech, Morehouse, Drexel University, Princeton, and some other place, um and um uh, um Wentworth Institute of Technology. I know everything about Wentworth. Where's Wentworth? Wentworth is in Boston. It okay. is a highly, uh, it's you know, it's one of those hidden gems. Um, it 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 takes only so many um, students every September, and it has one of the highly proclaimed. Um, um, computer engineering courses, I mean, uh, programs in the country. Wow. And and so they offered him um, a full scholarship. And so he's going to take, he's going to go into um, Wentworth program in September and be there for a semester and see what happens. And so it's been, it's been, and he has a girlfriend, Ruby. <laughs> You're kidding. A serious girlfriend. He's. Hey, this is the. This is their third year. Wow. Uh, we've all been looking, and we he can't hardly figure out to find his toothbrush. But we've been trying to figure out how he's kept his girlfriend. <laughs> and his, his girlfriend is in pre med at George Tech. I mean, she, and she's a year older, so wow. uh, I guess he didn't want me telling all his business on on, the, on this program. Also? Is she Pardon a Bostonian me? also? 
she is also a Bostonian, yes. Um, and um, so uh, it is all going well, and, and it is interesting that we've been talking about this tonight because two of the schools that uh, he was offered full scholarship to, I mean, he's been a brainiac all his life, but anyway, um, one of them is MIT and the other is Georgia Tech, and one of the things he said is that um, that there is so much, and he went to a STEM program for six years at MIT in the summer there, STEM summer camp, and one of the things he said is that's not an environment he wants to be in, and mm-hmm. we asked him why, and, and he said, oh, it's because I just, think that it perpetuates the kind of racism against black students that you don't see in other schools. So I I, I think his head is on straight. Yeah, it sounds be, like he's really moving forward together. Yeah. Yeah, he is. But uh I'm I'm proud of them all. I'm I'm very, very proud uh of them all. Um and and i think that what we what we have to do is we have to begin to start listening to our children yes um and we have to make sure that their voices are heard wherever they are yes um you know um so let's talk uh, uh some about the inter- intergenerational gap within our own community. And and I did ask you about uh how how we begin to find our, our our restructuring in the institutions where we are, the black church, um the Greek organizations, the the the, the community organizations and whether or not they are straying. Uh and, and using uh, a cultural, uh, socioeconomic measurement that's been uh, part of the problem? Well, I think that the institutions are composed of black people, and the institutions are what we are, who we are. They're not separate from who we are, so we bring to the institutions all of our strengths as well as our growing edges, all of our uh, sanity as well as our pathologies, and so that the institution is not an abstraction; it's the soul of who we are, and and so the black church ma- is a manifestation of who we become as a people, both positive and negative. And how do we begin um, to be able to? Offer that to fill this 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 gap uh, where we have um, especially well trained professional black people, young black people from this new millennial and other people, whatever they call those eras uh, that I can't think of right now. Um, how do we begin to start the dialogue to to fill in the gap, because I see them as isolated. 
They're talking about well, something. Well, if they're isolated, about. then we're also isolated. Because yes. if they're isolated yes. from us, we're also isolated from them. And that that represents cultural genocide because the United Nations says that when young people are separated from the group and there's no possible, and they're not talking about physical death, they're talking about separation, that, 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 that genocide is to interfere with the continuity of a group. And so black continuity has always been an issue in this country, all the way back to enslavement, when enslavers would separate families from each other, children from their parents, and when, and when black parents had to migrate from the South, leaving terrorism, or when black people had to migrate from the Caribbean uh, to, 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 to try to find an economic life uh, because they were exploited in their own country. Black countries, black people have always had to fight for intergenerational continuity and that the system that white supremacists and the culture of whiteness have always thought it was necessary to create a, Africa, a diaspora within this country and also to do intergenerational continuity. Now, what happened is, is that segregation required us to be with each other. And therefore, what was intended to be devastating, we took it and made out of it our uh, continuity between generations. And black people, older black people, became our significant others. And so in the South, we were building a people, whereas given the requirements of integration in the North and co-optation, they were building exceptional Negroes. And that was a real different starting point. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We had Mm -hmm. to build a people in the South. And so we did institutions, we did businesses, we did hospitals. Now don't forget, throughout the 1970s, there were black hospitals all over the South. And then we gave those hospitals up and, and, and thought that it was be- that the sign of our freedom was the, was the ability to give up our hospitals and attend predominantly white hospitals. And we walked mm-hmm. away on our medical institutions. We turned our backs on them. Mhm. Mhm. And 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 really in the at the toward the end of the 70s we also turned our backs on our educational uh institutions. Yes, so part of understanding freedom is to ask ourselves why did we abandon our homes, our institutions? Why is it that we did not value anything that belonged to us, not even our own children? Because we thought it was better on the other side of the fence. <laughs> I'm just saying. Well, I th- no, no, no. That's true. I think that what happened is that I think that our our ancestors, our parents, our grandparents were a little bit different. That they did not allow whiteness to invade their inner lives that we thought that we became very confused about the Southern Freedom Movement, and we thought that the mountaintop was not a state of consciousness. We thought it was a place that you went and that that verified that you were free. And we thought that the movement had been about integration 
rather than democratization. And so that we thought that, that in order to live into the mission of what we perceived was was a civil rights movement, it meant that we needed to integrate, we needed to abandon our communities and, and, and to go into white institutions because that had been the goal. When Martin Luther King had made it very clear that he was not calling for a movement to abandon black institutions. But you see, we did not hear that. We allowed other people to bring to the South, listen, black presence, black people in the South did not want to abandon our institutions. What we wanted to do was to have equal and fair access to the fruits of democracy, pure and simple. But Northern blacks who had been products of the integration experience redefined the nature of the movement, and they made into a movement to integrate. But most peasants that I worked with in Alabama, including myself who was a peasant, I was not wanting to go to no white institutions. I wanted to be treated like a human being, and that's a real difference. But the mission of the Southern Freedom Movement got co-opted by northern black people in conjunction with northern liberals, and they created a melting pot movement that required black folks to do what white folk had done in the north. And so we stopped building a people, and we began to build exceptional Negroes. And we began to take our children, take the brightest kids, raid our communities the way the West had raided countries around the country, the world, or the best and brightest in those communities, and train them in Western institutions. And they could never go home again, and they never looked back. And they became strangers at their parents' table. And we did not ask, answer the question that Martin Luther King posed, and it was a very profound question. Where do we go from here? We were experts in creating survival patterns as an oppressed people, but we had not thought about what were the modalities and the defenses and the offenses that we would create as a free people. And so because we had not done that work, then, then, then the, 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 the revisionists came along and redefined who we had been to each other, who they had been to us, and we began to believe that they had the power, that they were the ones who made all of that possible. Mm-hmm. And so it's created, a real, it's created a real problem in our community. We've had to constantly fight as indigenous people have had to fight to maintain continuity between the generations. And we were doing a pretty good job in the South until we became distracted by integration rather than democratization. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And the goal became uh, a house and two cars. Um, Not only a house and two cars, but to live in a white neighborhood with two cars. To leave to leave our black communities unguarded and unprotected, mm-hmm. and to put our resources in white communities while leaving our own communities depleted of resources. And see, the reason why I say this is that you can't see yourself. So even though we've not even asked what is the nature of the 21st century, we still talk about inner cities as if gentrification has not depleted black uh, northern cities of black folks who have who've been forced to move out because of high rents and, 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 
requirements that make it impossible for them to get an apartment in big cities. And so that we've not understood that in a capitalist technocracy, black folk now have migrated to the South, and 60% to 57 to 60% of black people now live in the South. And so the South has a rendezvous with destiny. But we still look at New York City, we still look at these urban centers as if they are what they were during industrialism. We don't understand that we no longer live in an industrial society. We live in a technocracy. And so we're not even asking what is the meaning, what does it mean to be black in a capitalist technocracy where very few lives matter and black lives matter least of all lives. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And what and, does and it mean to be black in an economic structure where we never had access to equal access to jobs? And what does that mean now when human labor is no longer needed because it, rep- it has been replaced by, te- by technocracy and machinery? What does that really mean for us? So what, what, I mean, that's a really critical shift. We're no longer needed. We're, we are disposable waste. And so what does it mean for us to be shuttled outside of cities into rural areas that are isolated, that are food deserts, where we don't have access to medical, to hospitals, to medical treatment? What does it mean? Are we building 21st century been to communities where black people will be isolated and, and separated and, 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 and become targets for all kinds of assault, a new kind of 21st century poverty? Because the Ford Foundation says that by the year, tw- they, were, they quoted a report that was put out by the Economic Institute that says that by the year 2053, black people will have zero income wealth. And you say that to black folk and they move on like you haven't said anything. Zero mm-hmm. medium mm-hmm. income wealth, let me correct myself. So that means that this country does not intend for your grandchildren or my nieces, my great nieces and nephews to have a future in this country. Or why would we have it's zero it's, medium income yeah. wealth? Yeah, and I And I so think... we get into this fantasy. We believe that Although we know the pernicious nature of this country and although we know the history of genocide and although we know what they've done to us in the medical industrial complex, we delude ourselves that these people are not capable of unleashing bacteriological warfare or Mm. to manipulate the gene pool. I mean, we are just totally, what I think, underdeveloped and naive in our thinking. You put the power to manipulate the genes in the hands of people who've had a history, as these people have a history, who created the eugenics movement in the 1920s, who sterilized what they called idiots and black people uh, and and, and did uh, uh, experiments on black women in North Carolina, sterilized black women and black girls in North Carolina, and also did medical experiments on black men in Holmesburg prisons, I think I think it's called Holmesburg. What makes us think that these people are not capable of, of doing tremendous things with technology in terms of human development? Why would we be so innocent? 
Why aren't we teaching our children that if the, if the Economic Institute says that by the year 2053 there will be, why aren't we teaching our children how to survive in a world like that instead of pretending that they've got the same chances and that they occupy the same destiny in America as white children do? These people don't even love their children anymore. They're so addicted to a gun culture that they're now killing their own children for profit. What makes us think that there'll be any counter to our children? Where do we begin, Ruby? You asked me. (laughs) (laughs) I, you know... Ruby, you know, you and I are at that stage. I don't I don't know I haven't I haven't talked to you so recently that I can gauge it, but I'm beginning to feel desperate that the work that I do and that I have spent my entire adult life doing that um I have rejected all the possibilities except for that potential and possibility to uplift our people, I'm beginning to feel I don't have much time. Well, the truth of the matter is we we are getting closer to the riverside, and the truth of the matter is, is that I'm not saying that older people like us need to step aside. We need to redefine what our role is in this, and that we become mentors and, gu- and guides rather than try to occupy the center of power, and that we need to train up a new generation and not be jealous of power and not try to hold on to what we... Because the truth of the matter is to be at the center of a movement is very demanding, and aging begins to take its toll. And no matter our commitment and no matter how much we want to participate, some sometimes it's it's not possible to do what we did 25 years ago. And so Absolutely. I think very foolhardy not to begin to mentor young folk and not to t- let them make their mistakes, let them be radical, let them do exactly what we did. Let them challenge the status quo, including us, because by the time you get to be our age, you've accumulated so many things that you want to protect and guard that it's hard to stand up and and, 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 and and to be reckless and to and to challenge the, the the status quo without any concerns about the consequences. And that's what yes. the young yes. can do until they get credit cards. <laughs> Unfortunately the society has manipulated and and, 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 and diminished their power through credit cards and, and, and all of the ways in which they're materially hamstrung at such a young age, and they become 35 at 18. And how are you going to have a revolution when you got to pay American Express? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but, but this but is what I want to say because I hear you feeling Where is the train? We had a training institution. It was on our front porch. It was in our kitchen. It was at the, having to go to the church meeting with your mama. It was... Uh, uh, at the at at the chess at the, the the checkers corner where the old men played, it was it was in a lot of places to begin to train the mind to see clearly where we were as a 
per- people and as a community and as a person. Where is that now? I think that we've got to look back and understand that ever since the Southern Freedom Movement, the guardians of a white culture whiteness declared war on the strongholds in black America that produced the, the, the activists and the freedom fighters of the Southern Freedom Movement because what the guardians of whiteness thought was that we were passive, that we were afraid of them, and suddenly this blazing fire erupted in the South, and they people who would stand up to dogs and people who would stand up to billy clubs and calipods and hoses going 200 miles an hour, who were not afraid to go to jail, who turned jails from sites of terror into sites of liberation, who turned the streets of America from sites of terror into sites of liberation, and and so that they ask themselves, what manner of people are these who are able to shake the foundation of our empires with just a song and a prayer in their bodies? And we were not afraid. And so that they began to create think tanks in the 90s that began to study the strongholds of black survival. And we never re- and so once again, because we allow other people to interpret our our movements and our struggle, we never realize that we have been a mighty people who had destabilized the Southern Empire, one of the strongest empires in the modern world, without firing a shot. Hallelujah! Without firing a shot, we were able to bring down and rearrange not only the social structure, but to destroy a plantation sharecropping system and create an economic revolution where black people were finally getting a, a living wage. We did all of that in the Southern Freedom Movement. And instead of celebrating that, where people said y'all didn't do everything, and therefore it's invalid, without understanding the amazing things that the people did. These were peasants. These were sharecroppers. These were maids. And they didn't have any weapons. They just had a soul force that was more powerful than all of the king's weapons. So what, where we are, Ruby, um, believing and understanding that our denial that our this memory confusion. Is memory. Okay, okay, okay. It's a it's a, a a cultural historical memory. We because exactly what I was trying to say is that you have to yeah. understand that ever since the Southern Freedom Movement, black people have been victims of a white America's war, and the war intensified when they woke up one morning and Newt Gingrich told them. That by the year 2000, uh, this country would be predominantly black and brown. Yes, and then they yeah. really spread up the genocide. You have to understand that when you incarcerate a whole generation and separate children from their parents, uh, that you're creating cultural genocide. You're disrupting mm-hmm. the continuity of a group. And so we have been under genocidal attacks 
in this country all of our lives, and it got and it was accelerated when white people began to realize that demographically they would no longer be the majority. And suddenly, we hear so much now about Trump's base. They're only 38%, but they have become the majority voices in this country. Whereas when we were the majority, we were constantly told that the majority rules, but now the minority rules. Because what, and, and the thing is, is that we have got to begin to understand that, that struggle and change requires study and reflection and analysis. For example, when we add up places like, let's say, New Haven, Connecticut, or Boston, we think of Boston as a white city. But, yes, but that's not true. The, the way the census works is that white people are counted as a monolith. If, mm-hmm. No matter where you are, no matter your ethnicity, if you're white, you're counted as one group, whereas if you are black and brown, you're split up. Split up, mm-hmm. and that was intentional. And therefore um, it appears that white people are the majority, when if you were to count black and brown people together as a colored monolith, then we are the majority. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's why they are attacking the census, and this is why they are attacking birthright citizenship, because the truth of the matter is, we are the majority. Trumpism emerges out of the out of the fear of white disappearance in a majority colored world. And we also watched him not through the lens of his behavior, not through the lens of his criminal enterprise and empire. We watched him because we thought we we thought he was appropriate because he was rich. Who thought that? Lots white of America. That's not why he thought yes. that he could walk yes. down on Fifth yes. Avenue and shoot someone and not be arrested. Right. He knew exactly. the power of whiteness because yes. he had been taught in, by Paul Manafort and Roger Stone who had made a, a million dollars in, in money off of uh, perpetuating racial divides in this country, Willie Orton, and all of the ways in which they have worked with Republican presidents to milk the racial divide. And so Donald Trump understood the seductive nature of whiteness, and he understood that white people would kill, obliterate, all, commit suicide against mm-hmm. their own interests for the seductive opiate of whiteness. Mm-hmm. So he and that's his what he white... ruled, and that's the seduction. Yeah. Ruby, let me, um, we we only have uh, a little while more to, to be with on this wonderful porch with you tonight. Tell our, tell, tell the audience what you are involved in and how they can help to raise the national, to be a catalyst for this new national conversation and education that needs to take place. Uh, and and I'm think, I've been thinking for weeks now that this is a wonderful time because people are home. 
and they have time to do some of the things that they've never had time to do. What are you going to be doing, and how can people stay in touch with you, and and, and what's the future of the Spirit House Project now in this in in the context of of all of this this crisis? Well, I think the one thing that we're really wanting people to do through the study of history, literature, we're trying to develop a folk voice because the black folk voice has, has been has either disappeared or has been diminished. And so that we understand that movement is really about shifting the culture. So we're going to be trying to create opportunities to develop the folk voice to shift the culture in this country through the arts, through scholarship, through uh, spiritual reflections, through education, through action. So that's what we're going to be doing, to have black people begin to articulate who we are in our own voices and to understand the context by which and from which we speak. And so that's what we're going to be doing. And we're going to say that we must keep our eyes on the people and not unless on, yes, we must understand what's going on with Donald Trump and his minions. But at the same time, when they become our obsession, we miss the wonderful miracles that are happening with the people because when when black people in Wisconsin and brown people went out to vote, when they would not allow themselves to be stymied in exercising their rights because they feared death and they did not allow the, the Republicans to use death as a tool of voter suppression, that was the beginning of a movement because they had wrestled with the whole fear of death. And once they decided to go out there, they had moved up a, a high. They had moved up to a higher consciousness, where death no longer was was something that held them back. That the empire no longer had that power over them, and that's an important step in any movement. Because once you go through that, there's no stopping you. And so, and so that when we look back retrospectively at that moment in Wisconsin, it will be a Rosa Parks moment on the bus and so that we see movement happening all over this country we see people leaving their homes giving up their jobs going to work in cities where there's a need for people to help in the medical industrial complex we see people uh, honking their horns in New York City going on their porches as an organized effort on their patios every day at 7 o'clock, every night at 7 o'clock. That's a movement. So something powerful Mm -hmm. is happening in this country that we're missing because we're too obsessed with Donald Trump and less interested in understanding what's going on with the people. So we have to begin to keep our eyes on the status quo, on the empire, but at the same time keep our eyes on the people and to understand the signs of the times that we're witnessing. Yes, this is the worst of times, but it's also one of the most hopeful of times because people around the country are rebelling and are resisting and are coming together in ways that we have not done in many, many years, and that's called hope, and that's called movement. So Spirit House's role would be to to work with people so that we can incur, so that we can interpret the signs of the time 
in such a way that we begin to understand our power and to and to utilize our power in ways that we're not wanting. Because I get tired of people saying, oh, well, politi- politicians are not big daddies. They're not going to free us. They're not going to to make us better than who we are. We have that power. And so we've got to stop. I'm not saying that we should not participate in the political process, but we should participate in it not as dependent people, but as a powerful people who have the power to tell politicians what we need and to demand that we get it. But I mm-hmm. see us as children who are thinking that Big Dad and Big Mama are going to come and rescue us without understanding that their job is to maintain the status quo. And not one politician is a, is a radical. And any politician that tells you that there are revolutionaries sitting in the highest seats of power in this country is an absolute liar and it lacks integrity. Mhm, mhm. So when we begin to rebuild, when we begin to build a new infrastructure in in which we define our freedom and claim our liberated selves, then we need to be looking at inward. Uh, at the resources that that we have available to us. Yes, and, and, some, and to sometimes I think that people... we have, we have been building up these resources for 400 years. And the truth of the matter is, we are not the only ones who possess these resources. That history teaches us that there have always been European Americans in this country who've broken with the culture and who've tried to participate is democratizing America. And in the 21st century with the multi-ethnic groups in this country, that our movements have to be movements where we speak in tongues, where we talk about the particular as well as the universal realities of what it means to live in this country and what that has meant. Mm -hmm. And so we've got to stop saying to people that they are marginalized because when you say to people that they are marginalized, what you're saying is that the ultimate Identity is determined by who they are within the empire, yeah, not in yeah, terms of who yeah. they are with each other or who we are in creation or who we are as legitimate heirs of democracy. So what is the good news? Is that a liberating message when you say to people you're marginalized? That denies that there are multidimensional existences in the world, their relationship with their families where they're significant, their relationship with their communities, where they are significant, and them and the power of the people in a democracy. Mm-hmm. So we have to say yes. The state marginalizes you, but the good news is that you're not marginalized. That you are essential to democracy. Well, Ruby Nell Sales, we have enjoyed your hospitality. We have been uplifted by it. And being in this place on your front porch tonight, uh, we thank you for uh, your spirit and your genius and your outstanding way in which you connect with us and bring clarity uh, to confused souls and healing. 
and you're going to come back. I'm back now. I'm back for real. Well, I'm so glad you're back, and welcome back, and thank you for allowing us to stand on common ground. Well, we... In a society that fractures us and separates us and segregates us, that this is a healing place, and thank you for creating it. And thank you, and everyone in my audience I know is uh, so appreciative of the time that you have spent with us and allowed us to be with you. Ruby Nail Sales, a sister warrior from the Southern tradition. Yes, indeed. <laughs> Ruby, now I, 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 I'm going to connect. I will talk to you very soon. Thank you so very much. Thank uh, you for, for having me. And good night to everyone, and thank you for being on my front porch. I've enjoyed your company. Thanks for the, because you have really shared some good tea here tonight. <laughs> and for those of you who want to um, hear more and follow Ruby Sales, she is on Twitter, the Real Ruby Sales, at the Real Ruby Sales on Twitter. Follow her and on Facebook for her from my front porch web commentary. Uh, thank you. We didn't get any calls in tonight, and I apologize for that. But I did want to talk to all of you about helping us uh, bring back all of our uh, our Common Ground listeners and what you can do. Uh, please, if you can, subscribe to us at OurCommonGround.com, which is the Our Common Ground website and blog uh, you can, um, on our site, we have our Twitter feed and our Facebook tweet, uh, Facebook uh, feed uh, on the site. On the first page, it's ourcommonground.com. But we also invite people to write pieces and we share commentary and news information uh, at that site. We also do so on our Facebook site. Uh, Facebook page, which is Our Common Ground Talk Radio, and all of our affiliates, the TruthWorks Network, uh, the Alpha Show, Working While Black, Black Women in the Prism, Zero Tolerance for uh, School to Prison Pipeline, and a Reparations Reader which we provide information about uh, your interests and your understanding of why there, we demand reparations in America for descendants of the American slave trade. We want to thank Michelle and Alpho in our chat room for keeping it alive. I don't know if you all are keeping it alive or, or what, um, but... Um, and thank those of you who have been listening on your listening devices. You can listen to Our Common Ground on demand um, at Stitcher, Stitch, iTunes, Apple Podcasts. We are everywhere. There is no reason. And also enjoy us on YouTube. Every one of these programs have are edited and the conversation 
is placed on our YouTube channel, which is our common ground. But most important to help us out is for you to share the information that we provide about our programming. Um, I know that I've been away for two and a half years, and there was a real reason for that. Um, And I'm going to talk about it a little bit more on next week's program. And we're hoping that Dr. James Taylor is going to join us for next week. Remember, he had an emergency, and he only had a little time to spend with us on last week's uh, program. So we're going to have him back on the broadcast. Um, and we hope that you will be joining us uh, next week for Our Common Ground. Our Common Ground has never been a job for me. I mean, even though when I was on terrestrial radio, I got paid. Um, uh, It's never been a job. This is my life's work. It is so, I mean, if you listen to to uh, Ruby Sales tonight, if you read her reading, uh, her writing, um, if you listened uh, last week, and for those of you who did not catch last week's broadcast, Dr. Kamara Jones uh, had uh, some very insightful uh, solutions around the impact of the pandemic on the on black people in this country, especially around handling issues where white supremacy and and racism become an issue in access and medical treatment. Uh, also, in terms of specific to the pandemic, the kinds of things we need to be advocating for. Um, so you can find her on on um, on demand at our YouTube channel, and uh, even here at Blog Talk Radio, all of our shows are archives. We have been doing this program for those of you who have new uh, on the internet for uh, since 2009, but this show began. Um, in 1985 uh, at WPOM Radio. It is always our common ground because we think that's what it has to be. You are not alone. We are alone together. It is a hashtag. Our hashtag at Twitter at Janice OCG is Trust Your Struggle. We'll see you next week and hopefully we'll have with us, um, Dr. James Taylor. Who are you when you don't know, when you should have done, but you didn't, when you should have, but you don't, when you can't find, won't ask, can't say what you want? Who are you when you recognize that you have accepted, tolerated, and accommodated stuff from them or him or her? That has diminished yourself. Just who are you? Broken down and tired of living life on the merry-go-round. And you can't find a Thank you for joining us at Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. Transforming truth to power. One broadcast at a time.
Thank you for being with us tonight on Our Common Ground. Join us next Saturday night as we talk with you about issues of race and intersectionality. You must know who you are the first thing in the morning and all the day long. Not because they told you, but because you know it, you feel it, you believe it, and you live it. Just who are you?